Well, I love America. I am a, an American, and this truly is a great nation. It is great in its territory. It is great in its strength and its beauty. It is great because of its unparalleled achievements, great in our resources, and America is great in its kindness. It has shared those resources, our scientific discoveries, our humanitarian aid. We are literally the food basket for the entire world. I love America because it gives me the freedom of religion and the freedom to stand up and speak for the Lord this morning. Someone once asked one man, he said, well, isn't it true, really, that the Soviet and American constitutions guarantee the freedom of speech? Yes, the friend said, that's true, but the American constitution also guarantees freedom after speech. <laughs> and today I love our country because even after I stand up and preach like this, I can have that freedom to do so again. And we today freely proclaim our love for our country. And for those of you who are returning, uh, maybe don't normally come, thank you for showing your trust and support of this ministry here. If you're a first-timer here, thank you. We are very grateful for your presence, and we trust that you will feel the presence of the Lord as well as sense the urgency that uh, in the history of our great republic is never before. It has been said that a man who won't use his freedom to defend his freedom doesn't deserve his freedom. A groom was terribly nervous on the eve of his wedding. What is wrong? His friend said. Are you okay? Did you lose your ring? He said, no, but I think I've lost my enthusiasm. <laughs> and you know, this morning I think there are a lot of Christians, frankly, who've lost their enthusiasm for our country and being a patriotic person. Here at the home church, we unashamedly proclaim, we still stand for the flag, we respect our national anthem, and we are unashamed to put flags, uh, all these flags out here, each one representing someone who served, some actually died for our country. Many today are wondering what it is that's going to determine the destiny of our great nation. Some would say if we could only get a Democrat elected in 2020 in the White House, then we would, things would be solved. And I say, Lord help us. But others think that if we could have a Republican, that would be the answer. But I will this morning give you three uh, keys to I, write straight from Scripture for the destiny of our great country. Let's all bow for a word of prayer. Father, I thank you this morning for this opportunity. Thank you as we stand here to be able to proclaim we uh, say, Lord, unashamedly, we love our country, but we know that it's you, Lord, that founded this country and sustains it. We pray that all of us would get a sense of what we can do for America today. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to go to the wonderful book of 1 Timothy in the New Testament. This is a uh, letter written by the great Apostle Paul to Pastor Tim, Timothy, Timotheus, they faithfully served together for about 15 years in various parts of Asia Minor and Greece. But at this point in time, Timothy is the pastor in the church at Ephesus. And so Paul decides to just reiterate some key things that the church needs to remember, and in particular, how that they ought to behave themselves, as it says in chapter 3, verse 15. 
Why would they need to know this? Well, because this church was right smack dab in the middle of a pagan, pagan society. Corruption was rampant. Government was led, the Roman government was led by no other than Nero. Yes, him. The environment uh, there was increasingly immoral. It was uh, just a terrible time to live. What is a Christian to do in times like this? What is a church to do? What is their responsibility? How are they relate to others in the community? How are they to relate to those in the government? And so the Apostle Paul, the great Apostle Paul, gave Pastor Timothy three keys to the destiny of their time. And I believe it plays into our destiny. And that is, number one, we must pray unceasingly. So let's go to 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse number 1. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 1. I exert therefore that first of all prayers, supplications, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. Notice he begins with the phrase, I exhort. The word exhort there denotes the idea of urgency, almost a sense of begging. This was coming from his heart. This was the passionate cry of an older religious statesman who was looking at this younger pastor saying, brother, you are facing a battle for your life and a battle for this church. I love this church. I love this country. I love people around the world. And the Apostle Paul was saying, I exhort you. I beg you, really, is the word there. Notice what he says, first of all. Our primary duty as believers in a pagan society, your primary goal is to be moral. No, I'm sure that's a great plan, a wise plan, not only for the gospel, but certainly for our own preservation. Did he say, I I want you to be conservative people who stand for the truth? I'm sure, again, that's a very smart choice. But the primary duty he mentioned to these people is to pray. To pray. Now, many people would wonder, uh, what are we supposed to do in this world that we live in? Some would say, I think we need to come together as a church. And I agree. I think coming together as a church is a great thing. The term that the Bible uses for that is koinonia, the Greek word. It just means fellowship. And I believe fellowship is a great thing to do. And I think it is vital. But my friend, if koinonia or if fellowship was the only goal of a church, well, God might as well just take us to heaven because that's perfect koinonia for sure. No, here I believe he reminds us that the first and the primary thing is to reach the lost. It says, prayer be made for all men. Now, why did he say that? Because all men, all women, all people need Jesus Christ. Apparently, what would happen in this time was that some people were beginning to feel a little bit exclusive about who they should reach. And so, Brother Paul reaches out to Pastor Timothy. He says, look, you need, to, you need to remind these people that we need to pray for everybody. Nobody is outside of God's grace. Nobody can't be reached for the Lord. We need to pray for everybody. There was a group of people who kind of felt like unless you were Jewish, you couldn't go to heaven. Then there was that Greek mindset called the Gnostics, and they had the word means knowing or knowledge. They kind of had the idea that uh, you have to be a, a knowledgeable person. And sometimes knowledge, as 1 Corinthians 13 says, puffeth up. And sometimes people who have an education think that they're a little better than other people. And so here, there were people who apparently were thinking in the church that, 
well, there's no use praying for this group, or there's no use praying for this group. And the Apostle Paul says, we need to pray for all men, because all men need Jesus Christ. And this is a biblical pattern. Moses, the great statesman for God and man of God in Numbers chapter 11, cried out for the salvation of a nation. Samuel, the last prophet, priest, and king combination in 1 Samuel chapter 12, even went further than Moses. He said, not only should we pray for a nation, but he said, I sin if I don't pray for you. The psalmist in Psalm 25 verse 22 cried out, redeem Israel Oh, Lord, Jeremiah wept for his nation. Daniel fasted for his nation. Stephen looked at the people around him when he was dying after being beaten and there lie under that pile of stones that they were throwing at him. He said, Lord, forgive this people. They don't really know what they're doing. And then in Romans chapter 10, I love that wonderful passage where the apostle Paul said these words. He said, my heart's desire and prayer for Israel is that they might be saved. Do we realize how important prayer has been to the founding of our country? The first colonies, the first community building was a church where they prayed. The Puritans, when they came to Plymouth Rock, their first act was to kneel and to praise God and to dedicate their new colony to the Lord. Roger Williams, the first governor of Rhode Island, was a Baptist minister. Lord Baltimore held church services when they founded Maryland. William Penn, in writing the government policies for Pennsylvania, wrote these words. He said, all treasurers, all judges, and all elected officials must profess their faith in Jesus Christ. Wow. Twelve of the thirteen colonies incorporated the entire Ten Commandments into their civil and criminal codes. Our first president, George Washington, when he took his oath of office, he put his hand on the Bible. And what was his first official act as president? He kissed the Bible. And then they held a two-hour praise and worship service in Congress. How did they open their time in Congress? With prayer. How do they still open their time in Congress? With prayer. Kind of strange when you can't pray in the public school, but they pray in our Congress but you know, I remind ourselves the question. Some think that they, there is just to be a separation of church and state. It doesn't sound like to me they wanted to keep God out of the government. Now, I, I'm certainly all for keeping the government out of the church. That's a good idea. But first and foremost, America's destiny lies in praying unceasingly. Now, I want you to notice God gives us four ways to pray here in this verse. He uses the word supplication and prayer, intercessions and giving of thanks. Now, in some degree, they're synonymous, but really each one has a shade of variation. Let me give them to you quickly, supplications. God said, you ought to supplicate. The idea there is of one begging. A sense of desperation. A supplicant is someone who is begging for something. When I come to somebody, I beg you, give me this, and the old English would say, and it just simply is an idea of begging for something, and here we ought to beg for the desperation that sinners have. People are thinking the greatest thing, need in our county or the greatest need in our country is for better highways. No, the best and most and greatest thing is for the Jesus way. Notice not, not only supplications, but prayers. The word there is actually a word for kneeling or lying down. It can 
It carries the idea of worship. And so when we pray, we are to beg God. When we pray, we are to worship God for His glory. Why we ought to pray for all people so that God will get glory. Then we ought to have intercessions. Now, normally the word intercessions would convey the idea of a lawyer, but actually that's not the word here. The word here is the idea of a friend or someone who is a confidant. We ought to intercede with God as a friend for other friends, people who need the Lord. Oh God, my neighbor needs the Lord. Oh God, these people need Christ. And then finally it says a giving of thanks. We ought to thank God for the gospel. We ought to thank God for the opportunity for people to get born again. And I want you to notice the scope of this prayer. It says, all men. The idea there for men is the word for women and children, basically everybody it's saying. Why? Because verse 6 later on says that Christ died for all men. But I want you to notice that he specifically points out one group, verse 2, for kings. In fact, all that are in authority. Now, why does the Apostle Paul highlight our government officials? Why does he say, I want you to pray for everybody? Everybody, your neighbors need to be prayed for. Your friends need to be prayed for. Your family needs to be prayed for. But I especially want you to pray for our government officials. Now, why was this? Well, I'm sure because many of them were not too happy with their government officials. You can imagine this church was suffering at the hands of the Roman emperor Nero. And his uh, governors and proconsul and others were just running roughshod over that area as well as much of the Middle East. This was a difficult time for the church. And I'm sure none of them really wanted to pray for Nero other than God kill him. But God was, but here he was saying, no, you need to pray for them. Maybe the fact was they were just out of sight. They, maybe people were thinking, well, probably does no good to pray for our government officials. But here, notice very clearly, he said, I want you to pray. And he goes on to say, pray for them that they will come to a knowledge of the truth. Can you imagine what would happen if every politician, if every official in our county, in our region, in our state, in our country knew that every Sunday churches were praying for them by name? They were praying for them that they would, God would give them wisdom, would help give them the understanding to lead our area. Folks, judges need prayer. Our mayors need prayer. Our supervisors need prayer. Those who run for Congress need prayer. We need to be a people of prayer. A teacher went into her classroom about 15 minutes before it was supposed to begin, and she caught a bunch of little boys huddling on their knees in the corner of the classroom. She looked over them and said, what are you doing? One shouted back, we are shooting craps. She replied, oh, okay, that's all right then, because I was afraid you were praying. <laughs> and that's, you know, part of the sadness of America, where people are gathering together to play, but not to pray. America's destiny lies in praying unceasingly. Number two, we must live righteously. Look at verse two says, pray for kings, pray for all that are in authority that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. America's destiny, its successful destiny, lies in godliness and honesty. Here, the concept is that prayer brings a quiet life and a peaceable life, a quiet life. 
That's the idea of an outward disturbance, being free from that. Folks, we function better when we're not being harassed from the outside. But not only quiet, but peaceable. That's from the inside. The idea is to live above stress and to live without all this inner turmoil. And that's the idea behind the Christian lifestyle. Every Christian in every community is to be a model citizen who on the outside is free from that kind of stress, from the inside has a good attitude. They are responsible citizens in every way. In fact, the word godliness there is a word for an attitude of reverence, reverence towards God and honesty towards others. Now, folks, we need to be those kind of people, people who live in such a way that are model citizens. Now, I am grateful for this church, and anybody who knows anything about the home church knows that we take a strong stand. But I'm thankful that our neighbors and our regions around us see us as their friends. I remember 20 years ago when there was a battle to allow us to be on this property. One of the words that was bantered about by different groups was, what is the highest and best use for this land? For the previous almost 20 years, this land had sat fallow with a bunch of weeds here. And I think for the last 20 years, we've proved that the highest and the best use of this land is the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And uh, that is the best use of any land. And it's been wonderful during this time that our neighbors have come to the point where we have this amazing relationship. We have reached out to them at their time of need. We've had those write us letters saying thank you. In fact, we received a, a, there in our office, we have a, a plaque, a, a commendation from the mayor of Stockton saying thank you for your community service. And I'm glad that we have a good reputation. But I will say this, we don't always agree with the lifestyle of those around us. We don't always agree with their morality or their decisions. But my goal is to live biblically. My responsibility is to pray. My responsibility is to live a godly life, one who's honest, that means uh, have a good attitude, one who uh, conducts myself as a good citizen. That's how we are to live. What if every politician knew? What if every leader in our country knew? What if every judge and every leader in our region knew that there's one place that you can count on people having some good, solid community standards, responsible citizens, you go over there to the home church and they'll reach out. Those people are people who mean business and they're doing the right thing. Charles Colson, who knows about doing the wrong thing, but got gloriously saved. His life was a tragic example of someone gets overwhelmed by power and corruption and the serving Richard Nixon at a very difficult season in our country's life later got gloriously saved, born again by the grace of God. He wrote a book called, How Shall We Live? And the question he asked in that book was this, how do we redeem a culture? And his words were simple, from the inside out. Like rings in a water that you throw a pebble and it hits down there, and little by little you saturate out. And ever-widening ripples, understanding what it means if one person in their neighborhood lives a good, strong, moral life, responsible citizen, praying person. Then they reach out and touch another child and another person and another person. And pretty soon neighborhoods, pretty soon whole communities. That's what it's saying here. We ought to pray unceasingly. And we might, 
should live righteously. Now, my responsibility is for myself. My responsibility as a father is for my family. My responsibility is to encourage others to live a clean life. I'm not here to judge people. I'm not here to make others do what I want them to do. But the fact is, God wants me to pray, and He wants me to live righteously. So not only must we pray unceasingly and live righteously, number three, we must evangelize fervently. Verse number three, for this is good and acceptable, meaning this is consistent with the nature of God. The nature of God is that He's a good God. The nature of God that His very name means Savior. Jesus Christ means the Messiah, the the Savior. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior. His very name is Savior. There's no other Savior. There's been other great religious leaders, but there's only one Savior. It says in verse 4, who will? Who will? It is God's will to have all men be saved. Now, the word will there does not mean predetermined. It means it is His desire. It is God's desire that all men would be saved. Unfortunately, not all men do get saved. God doesn't make people. The word will doesn't mean He makes it happen. It just means He desires it to happen. Who will have all men to be saved? How does that happen? When they come to a knowledge of the truth. Saved means delivered. Now, it's an old-time word, but it just means delivered. It just means put back into use again. Uh, we don't, uh, it seems like recycling has such a become a big thing, and you take something. I mean, we recycle everything now. I still can't figure out all these little bins that we go to, but, you know, when you take something out of the ground and uh, it's lying there, maybe it's a can, maybe it's a bottle, maybe it's some paper, and you throw it in one of those bins, it gets saved. It gets reborn. It gets remade. And that's what God, that's what the actual word means there. It means to be rescued from the righteous justice of God. And to all people need that. Now I want you to notice what it says. All people need to be saved. All people, all genders, two genders, (laughs) all genders need to be saved. All nations, every people group needs to be saved. All backgrounds, all cultures, all history, criminal. You'd say, well, I'm not going to pray for that person. I don't want them saved, folks. It makes no difference what sin we've done. God wants to save every person. You'd say, you mean God wants all these people in heaven? That's exactly right. It is God's desire that everybody come to heaven, making no difference about their past. That's his point. Now, I'm... It seems like a strange thing to have to tell a church, but that's what the apostle was telling Pastor Timothy here. He was saying, Pastor, tell your people to live in such a way and to pray in such a way that all people can be saved. That's the hope. Now, I know that people want to do this and do that to make a difference in our country, and that's good. But the key, the three keys to making a difference is to pray is to live the kind of a responsible, good life. And number three, to evangelize fervently. That's what we're to do. We're to give out the gospel. And notice what it says. It says, come to a knowledge of the truth. Now, I know there's people who want to say there's this truth and there's that truth, but there's only one truth. Jesus said this. He said, I am the way. I am the truth 
and the life. As the gospel is found in Scripture, he says, I am the truth. Now, brothers and sisters, ultimately, America's future is in our hands if we'll be prayer warriors, if we'll live righteously, and then we'll do what we can to reach out. You know, a, com- a church community does an amazing thing for any region. It provides so many services that the government doesn't have to, and really not even their responsibility. It is our responsibility to reach out and to tell people about Jesus Christ and to do what we can to evangelize, to have events like the Freedom Fest, to invite the community where thousands will come this afternoon and this evening and get all this amazing food for just a couple dollars here, to get all this free entertainment and fireworks and Old West show and all this. Why? This is costing us tens of thousands of dollars. Why do we do it? Because we want to evangelize fervently. Because all people need Jesus Christ. That's what they need. This past Monday, a tragic thing happened in the California State Assembly. It really uh, slipped in under the wire. And that is that the California State Assembly passed the resolution ACR 99. What is ACR 99? Well, it's not actually a law. It's a It's a public policy resolution. And they said that uh, all pastors and really Christian counselors, any people who tell others uh, uh, in the religious world, they must affirm homosexuality as normal, regardless of what the Bible says. Assemblyman Evan Lowe pushed the resolution. He won support, of course, among his Democratic uh, constituents there, but also unexplainably, by one of the chaplains from Azusa Pacific College, Dr. Kevin Manoa, who got along with this fellow. And they say this, here's, you're not going to believe it. In fact, when I read it, uh, I was just uh, flabbergasted, that pastors, counselors may not biblically counsel or try to convert anybody who is struggling with same-sex attraction. It also very publicly blames the church and religion for the high rates of suicide among those who identify as LGBT. Of course, they have absolutely no evidence for that. You'd say, well, what does this mean? It's just a resolution for now. But what it means is it is public policy. It is now state policy that you may not counsel someone and tell them that they uh, can have freedom from this kind of attraction. You'd say, well, isn't that a good thing, my friend? We are here to evangelize people. We are here to evangelize alcoholics who need Christ. We are here to evangelize lost church members, Baptist church members who don't know Jesus Christ. Our goal is to do everything we can to give them the gospel. Folks, everybody needs Jesus Christ. You'd say homosexuals need Jesus Christ. Of course they do, and so do pastors. And so do alcoholics and so do any group. We all need to be saved. And for us as pastors, my responsibility is to be biblically correct and to tell them that they need Christ. Of course, obviously, we cannot follow that policy. And here's the the, the sad thing. That, That state policy now is going to be given to counties, it's going to be given to cities, it's going to be given to different regions, 
And they are going to be now known that if anybody tries to convert, and of course the whole concept there is for this LGBT, but it really goes to any group then who would say that they shouldn't have to be converted. The folks is, we need to do what we can to have outreach. That's why we need to keep building new buildings like we're doing and Christian schools like we have here and do all we can because every man and woman and child needs Jesus Christ. You'd say, what can we do? We need to pray. We need to live. And we need to evangelize. Invite people. I'm not saying we need to go out and, you know, uh, um, hook everybody and, you know, make them feel uncomfortable. The fact is, though, we ought to do everything we can to give the gospel out and as lovingly, as kindly as we can. Have you ever heard of Rockin' Roland Stewart? Well, maybe not. I didn't. But I have heard of what he did. Have you ever watched one of those sporting events on TV, or maybe you've been to one, and you've seen people holding up these big signs, John 3.16? Well, John 3.16, of course, is one of the most well-known Bible verses in the New Testament. It reminds us that God came to save us and to give us eternal life. But he is responsible for that, this rockin' Roland Stewart. At one time, he was a drunk, an alcoholic, and he was introduced to Jesus Christ and became a Christian. And God healed him without alcoholism, and he began to go on to serve the Lord. And he got this passion to do something for God, to get the word out that Jesus can save alcoholics and he can save anybody. And so he decided he was just going to write John 3.16 on one of these big uh, boards and get out there in a sporting event and maybe a camera would catch it. Maybe someone in the stands would see it. It began to catch on. And I have no idea the uh, result of all of that, but I do know that it has caught on. And a few years ago, you may remember Tim Tebow. Tim Tebow, a, a tremendous uh, athlete, uh, played for college there in, in Florida. Well, they won actually the national championship in 2009. He had prayed for a couple of months because he had had a practice of putting a Bible verse uh, underneath his eyes, painting it under there. And, of course, the camera would focus on him. And he, uh, he, he became convinced that God wanted him to write John 3.16. And so the day that they won the national championship, they focused on that, and it said John 3.16. It is said that there were over 90,000 Google searches for John 3.16 when they won that national championship there. Amazing. But now let's fast forward three years. In 2012, Tim Tebow was playing for the Denver Broncos. He was brought in. He was playing against the Pittsburgh Steelers in a playoff. The Broncos amazingly won. Tim Tebow was headed to the uh, post-game press conference afterwards. As he was about ready to step up to the podium... A reporter caught him and said, do you realize what happened today? He said, I don't have any idea. What are you talking about? We won. He said, yeah, but do you realize something unique about this day? He said, do you remember three years ago when you won the college championship, you wrote John 3.16 under your eyes? He said, yeah, I remember that. He said, do you realize that today during this game, you threw for 316 yards? Did you realize that your yards per completion were 31.6? Do you realize that your yards per rush was 3.16? And do you realize that the time of possession for the Denver Broncos 
was 31.6 seconds. What a remarkable coincidence. I don't know, but I will know this. During that game, 91 million people Google searched John 3.16. Now, the fact is, I don't have a platform like Tim Tebow. I don't have a platform like this rockin' uh, Roland Stewart there, but I have a little platform, and what I do, I want to make sure that everybody knows they need Jesus Christ. He is the answer for all of the troubles. Wherever we've had the privilege of going, my precious wife and I around the world, I know that the, whatever government we've gone to, whatever place we've gone to, they want a good community, they want a good country, they want a good nation. But every time you go to a church, Every time you go to a Bible-believing, Christ-honoring church, you find people that are happy. They are law-abiding citizens. They are good people because that's the effect of the gospel. The best thing we can do for our country, pray. The best thing we can do for our country, live a model life, a biblical life. And number three, do what we can to evangelize. Have events. Give out invitations. Just do what we can to make a difference in our community. Folks, we must pray, we must live, and we must evangelize. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed here this morning.